for those who, um, who invest in the lives of others here in this place. I, I thank you, Lord. Uh, the more people who come and begin to call Cornerstone home, uh, the more I appreciate those who have been here uh, <laughs> since, uh, since we first huddled in, in my home. <clears throat> and Lord, I, uh, I just say before you that I, I certainly do not take them for granted. And Lord, my prayer this morning uh, is that as, um, as those who sit here under, under the hearing of your word and under, uh, under the theology of the music and songs that we sing, Father, would we, uh, would, we be, would we be changed and um, drawn closer to you? Uh, specifically, Lord, I pray that you would give men courage to abandon pride. Lord, I pray for the men who call Cornerstone home, that they would... Um, they would so be drawn by you and impressed by who you are, your character, your holiness, your righteousness, your forgiveness, your, your long-suffering, your patience. They'd be so in awe of you that they would not hesitate to express in whatever way that you, that you draw them their love for you. Lord, would you just give us a freedom? Would you give our men in this place a freedom. Would you help us who are inclined to uh, hold on tightly to our pride? Would you give us the freedom to set it aside? Father, if, uh, if you so impress us, we would, we would lay flat on the floor and cry out to you in, in praise, in repentance. Father, that, uh, that we would lift up holy hands in complete abandonment to you fully trusting in you. Would you do something in the men of this church? And Father, would you do something in the, in the women of our church? Would you strengthen their bond across lines of friendships? Would there be a bond among our women in this church beyond just their closest friends that reaches out to uh, women who may be uh, outside of their immediate circles of friends, would the women of our church have a desire to do that, a heart to do that? Lord, I don't know what draws people primarily to this place Sunday in and Sunday. I don't know why those who are here this morning are here and those who are uh, at home this morning are, are still at home. Even in regard to those who call Cornerstone their place of worship and service. But I, I don't know why these are here. Uh, but as Preston said earlier, I, I pray that you would, you would have a word for them in the midst of this service. One of those choice moments that Eric spoke to us about in uh, men's prayer this morning. Defining moments. Lord, I pray there would be defining moments as we talk about manhood and womanhood. Lord, I pray that men and women in this place would uh, do whatever it takes 
to make the adjustments that you're calling us to make in our lives. I pray this church and this leadership uh, provides everything that's needed for those who diligently seek your glory in a relationship with your Son. In Christ's name, amen. And let me give you just a, before I jump into our series, let me give you just a a little bit of a word on life groups. I told you last week that I was going to give you a a brief summary as to where we're going with our life groups this fall. As you know, uh, if you're familiar with our life groups, we take a short break over the summer. Many of you are on vacations, uh, usually through June and July. We've got uh, a third of our church out at any given Sunday, you know, out on family reunions to vacations to uh, whatever. So um, I'm going to have to get this word out further, but I want to make this announcement now and then we'll put the email out uh, as such. And some of you have maybe heard rumblings of this little bit of a tweak to our life group program, but I want to, I want to tell you that uh, your leadership has been thinking about this for a while and praying about it for more than six months as to what's the next best step for our life group program. See, we're not married to any system as such, all right? And so we have a goal in mind and what we want to accomplish through our life groups and through our Sunday morning services, frankly, through everything that we do. And so we're constantly examining, is it, is it working the way we need it to work right now? And so we're going to change it up a little bit. In the fall, starting in the fall, our life groups are going to go from what are primarily couples life groups to primarily uh, male and female life groups. Okay? Right now, if you have been involved in a life group, you've been going to a life group that is a couples, essentially, or a family life group. We're going to move towards not a couples program, but a male-female program. There are many reasons. Let me just give you a couple of those. One of them is convenience, and I'll explain that in just a second because it will make a little bit more sense in a moment. Uh, One of the primary ones, however, is just effectiveness. It's just simply effectiveness. What's the most effective way uh, from an educational standpoint, spiritually educating our people, growing our people, where are we seeing the most progress, the most steps towards Christ, the most steps towards each other in, in community, the most steps towards evangelism in those who are lost in our world? Where are we seeing the most progress? And frankly, our leadership has seen the most progress when women come together and when men come together. There are a number of reasons for that. One of, them, one of the reasons is that men tend to share more and be more accountable when it's just men. They tend to get more real when it's just men. Ladies, it's somewhat the same. Okay? Uh, so we're going to move in a direction that fosters that. We see positive things happening when our men come together and they get real. And they hold each other accountable and they challenge each other. We see positive things happening when our ladies do that. So we want to we champion that. Okay? Our church naturally has a family unit connection. You're naturally going to lunch with each other afterwards. You're naturally seeing each other at the ball field. You're naturally uh, having Fourth of July parties. Radley, you still have a Fourth of July party? I didn't announce that last week. Fourth of July party at Radley's house next week. All right? See Radley if you want to go. Uh, you, you guys are naturally doing that. So we don't necessarily at this point. Okay? This may change next year. Okay? But at this point, we don't feel like we have to foster the family connections as much, okay? So what we're going to foster is we're going to foster more male interaction and more female interaction. And I think this comes, this comes right on time with our current series, okay? And we didn't necessarily plan it that way. It's just kind of falling into line that way. And I think it's, I think it's good timing, all right? So here's what's going to happen. Starting mid-August, that's when our life groups will crank back up. Right about you get settled in from school and then our life groups are going to crank back up. We're going to have three men's groups each uh, we're going to, well, let me say this. We're going to have three men's groups and we're going to have three ladies groups to start out with. 
Okay? You'll be able to sign up for any one of those three men's groups or ladies' groups. Okay? We'll put it out on the bulletin board. We're going to give you a map out there and tell you where the three are. We're going to centrally locate them, put them at different places in our, in our uh, geographical area. And you can find one that's convenient to you or that is uh, on a day or evening that you can go. Okay? So they'll be on different days and they'll be in different areas of the town. You have three opportunities, three different host homes and three different facilitators. You can sign up and go to their or that life group. Okay? The men are going to meet one week, and then the ladies are going to meet the next week. And it's going to go every other week like that. Okay? Uh, one of the reasons is, and it's a little bit complicated, I won't get into it totally now, it's just for the sake of efficiency and not overburdening your family. We'd originally said, well, let's, let's have them both in the same week, everybody go every week, but that puts you and your husband or you and your wife not having dinner together two nights potentially of the week. And we didn't want to do that. Okay? So we said, how can we facilitate that? How can we keep that from happening? So plan right now is, and there may be some slight tweaking to this, okay? We're not, we're not saying, you know, we're completely nailed to this. We'll do whatever works best. The plan is right now, three men's groups you have options for, three women's groups you have options for. If your husband goes to group this week on Tuesday night, next week you may go to group on Thursday night. One of the convenience factors is there's been, and it always is in life groups and home groups, is what do we do with the kids during a couple's life group? And that's always a struggle, okay? This, in this system, potentially, uh, mom goes to life group, dad stays home with the kids, your kids stay on the same nighttime routine, they do their whole deal, that's not affecting them. Next week, dad goes, or mom goes, whatever I said, opposite of whatever I previously said. I'm losing track here. All right, you get the point? All right? And so uh, every now and then, those three men, men's groups and those three ladies' groups are going to have a, have a complete group. And there's going to be man events and woman events. And with our new women's ministry and director of our women's ministry, Dee Pazarezzi, she's going to be heading up those. She's going to be working uh, directly with our female host homes and our female uh, facilitators. Okay? And I'll be working directly with our male host homes and our male facilitators. The sign-up for these new life groups will come out on July 12th, I believe it is, two Sundays from now. All right, we'll have a map in the hall. There'll be a new bulletin board. We'll have a whole six or maybe one-year uh, calendar out, and it'll be color-coded. Blue, that's a man week. Pink, that's a lady week. Hope that doesn't offend anybody. Uh, We've got to be so sensitive here in this whole series. Uh, but we're just going to make it real easy on you, okay? Now, one of the concerns is, and I won't address all the concerns, but one of the main concerns for us was, are we taking away from family interaction, couples interacting, couples getting together and fellowshipping? One, we think you guys do that already, and we think you're going to continue to do that. You do it naturally, and so that's a benefit. Two, what we're going to do is we're going to start having, uh, we're going to call, perhaps, maybe we find a better name, koinonia groups or fellowship groups, okay? Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship. We're going to have fellowship meals, okay? Fellowship meals. And here's how this works. There'll be a, another board in the hall. And if your family, Scott, your family wants to sign up to host a fellowship meal, okay, you put your name and say, on Friday, uh, August, blah, 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 we're going to host a fellowship meal at our house at, at this time. And then there'll be two blank spots for two other families to sign up to come to that meal. And so anyone in here can walk down the hall and say, hey, this family's going to host a meal. I'd like to hang out with them a little more. I don't know them very well. Uh, I'd like to get to know them a little bit better, or I haven't got to spend much time with them in a while. I'm going to sign up and then go to their, their fellowship meal, okay? And that, that'll be totally fostered on you. Whenever you're ready to host, you sign up. You put your name up there, and you host. People sign up. It may be two couples that you don't know very well. It may be two couples you do know very, you do know very well. Okay, but we're going to we're going to foster some family fellowship in that way. And hopefully that gets you meeting some other families. All right. And you can do it potluck. You can figure out however you want to do it as far as the food and all that. Okay. 
Also, Wayne is going to be helping me as the director of children and family ministries in the family ministry regard. He's going to be helping me in scheduling some quarterly or every other month something. We're going to look at the calendar and not try and jam too much in there. But we're going to be scheduling some family activities, all right? Uh, family outing to the Gwinnett Braves ball game, all right? And so we're going to foster some family events like that. So some of the things that we might lose going to this new program in life groups from the old, we're going to try and make up for in some, in some ways that maybe foster better fellowship, okay? That's the gist of it. I'll put it all in writing. It'll go out in an email this week. You can start sharing that with everybody else. But uh, be ready to sign up on July 12th or at least look at the list and then pray about which group you need to land in. All right, Deep Pezzarezzi will be talking to our host homes this coming week and nailing down our host homes for the ladies. I'll be talking to some men and nailing down our host homes for the men. Nailing down the facilitators for each group, and then the list will be out, and you can sign up for what you want. Our fellowship meal uh, post will be out, and you'll be able to go there and sign up for fellowship meals, etc. And we're going we're gonna to try that. Listen, one thing we know is that that may not be the best thing for us next fall. And if it's not, we'll go another direction. It may be the best thing for us now. We think it might be the best thing for us now. We're going to give it a good shot. And if we need to adjust it, we'll adjust it. Okay? All right. Let's jump into our subject here. If you didn't get the uh, little note, there's uh, uh, your notes for this week. Uh, They're on the back table there. Feel free to slide back and get those. But we're going to be in Genesis uh, from chapters 1 through 5. In the first week of this series, we had really an emphasis. If you kind of think of this as a seesaw over these three weeks, in the first week of this series, we had an emphasis on equality between manhood and womanhood. In the second week of the series, we found ourselves sort of in the middle of the seesaw, trying to balance it out a little bit, saying we are equal, but we're not exactly the same. God created us differently. There are differences. There are distinctions. And so we were trying to balance this difference and equality thing. All right. We were trying to stand in the middle of that seesaw. This week, what we have to do is we have to go to the other end of the seesaw. All right. Now, if this is your first week in the series, you may get offended because we're going to have to. By necessity, go to the other end of this seesaw and weigh heavy more on our differences. Okay? So if this is your first week in the series, you're going to want to go back and listen to the first two messages online. All right? But this week, we're going to talk more heavily on our differences. And ladies, this is, this is the place where your flesh is going to begin to cry out against the pulpit. Okay? So let me just give you that warning. All right? But no, we're on that end of the seesaw this morning. And I, I hope that uh, the Spirit will intercede uh, on behalf of uh, the pulpit here this morning. So week one's goal, and you have this on your notes. I put them both back on there for you because I think they're important to remember. Our first week's goal was this, that men and women, since creation, are of equal value and equal worth. All right, that was our week one goal. Our second and really our third week goal was there next on your list, to grasp the goodness in God's design by seeing that equality and worth And value does not require sameness between man and woman. You see that? To grasp the goodness in God's design by seeing that equality and worth and value does not require sameness between man and woman. Now, I left a couple extra blanks in there for you. Well, this one, I'm done with it. Uh, I left a couple extra blanks in there with you intentionally because I've added a couple words that will clarify and help us solidify our second goal. All right. So here are your blanks to grasp the goodness in God's eternal design, because this isn't a this isn't an afterthought for God. This isn't a, 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 a different design. It was his original design. And that's part of our goal today. By seeing that equality and worth and value does not, nor has it ever. Nor has it ever. 
again, alluding to the fact that it didn't change. Required, past tense, added D there, sameness between man and woman. Did you get that? To grasp the goodness in God's eternal design by seeing that equality and worth and value does not, nor has it ever required, sameness between man and woman. And this morning we're going we're gonna to weigh heavier on the difference. And so the million dollar question that we are going to try and answer this morning, the argument goes something like this. Aren't our role distinctions just the result of the fall? All right. You heard that? If it wasn't for sin entering the garden, wouldn't an Adam and Eve just to always remain equal partners? Okay. Without being one over the other. And in fact, if that's true, shouldn't we now as new creations in Christ go back or default to our originally intended equality? No help, no head. You track on me? You see the argument? If all this is just a result of the fall, if, if headship and submission is just a result or a consequence of sin and the fall... Shouldn't we just now default in Christ as new creations and go back to what we were originally created to be? Well, the answer to that is no, um, for a number of reasons. And I'm going to give you ten indicators this morning that uh, collectively, that's your blank, collectively point to role distinctions prior to the fall. I say collectively because none of these next ten things that I tell you on their own are going to do it. Okay, in fact, some of them on their own are kind of weak. If that were the only evidence you had, they'd be kind of weak. But collectively, all of these together, I think, will point us towards the end of the seesaw that says there are definite distinctions in the roles that God originally designed for us prior to the fall. In other words, Headship and help is not a result of the fall, not a consequence of the fall. It's how God actually originally planned it to be best and ideal. You see the, you see the reason we have to answer that question. So let me give you the ten indicators this morning. Number one, uh, and we'll start off pretty simple here, man was created first. Number one, man was chronologically created first. Most scholars believe this says something about man being the initiator Throughout the rest of his life. This is, in fact, uh, the Apostle Paul's argument, isn't it? In 1 Timothy 2, when it comes to the role of women in the church, he goes back to Genesis and says that man was, in fact, created first. By itself, it's not the complete answer. With the rest, I think it, it will hold up to be uh, collectively Collectively, a good, a good stance to take. Number two, not only, and you can write these down, one through ten, however you feel best fit. Number two, not only was Adam created first, he was created in a significantly different manner than Eve. So man was created first, number one. But number two, you've got to understand, he was created in a significantly, and I think uh, uh, noticeably important, different manner. Go to, the, uh, go to Genesis. Go to Genesis 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7 says this, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and, remember this, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living 
being. Now that's not said of woman, that God breathed into her his very own breath of life and that she became a living being. That's specifically said of Adam. Then flip over to verse 21 and 22. Then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from where? Not from the ground. He didn't breathe into this, but he had taken it from the man and brought her to the man. Yeah. So Adam was created first. That's one indicator that that this was God's original plan, that he was the initial creation and he carries the weight of being the initiator throughout the relationship moving forward. That's one that's one good indicator in the direction of of God's original plan was man as the head and wife as the help. The second one is not only was Adam created first, but he was created in a significantly different manner than the woman was. Number three, it was the man who was given the moral ground rules for life in the garden, and he was evidently expected to communicate those ground rules to the woman. It was the man who was giving the original ground rules, the moral ground rules for life in the garden. Look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Genesis 2, 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Woman has not been created yet. The Lord God, verse 16, commanded man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, there's no record that God repeated this rule, this stipulation to the woman. The inference is, okay, and this is why this one indicator alone doesn't hold the weight of our whole argument. But the inference is that God did not re-communicate it to Eve, but he allowed Adam to communicate the rules of life in the garden to Eve. Okay? Number four. Number four is twofold. Eve was made from Adam and she was made for Adam. Eve was made from Adam and she was made for Adam. Let me unpack that. We alluded to this a little bit last week. In regards to her being made from Adam, in other words, she has her origin. The very origin of her creation being drawn from his side, being drawn from his rib, she has her very origin in Adam. She was made from Adam. That says something, I think, about his headship. She was also made for Adam, not just from him, but for Adam. Adam needed a partner, right, to help rule the still yet undefiled word world. Remember what God said in Genesis two twenty three. Uh, no, that's the wrong verse. Sorry. Um, where am I at here? Look at eighteen, verse eighteen. Then the Lord God said two eighteen, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then you remember what happened next? He brought all the animals by. Were any of them suitable? No, they were not suitable. All right. So not only was Eve made from Adam, she has her origin in him. She was made for him. The initial intent of her being was a result of Adam's need. Okay. 
Now that says something a little bit in balance as well. But she was created for him. All right. Number five. This one's simple. If you understand the historical context, we generally, I think, understand this one. Adam names her. Genesis 2.23. Then man said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. He gets the right, and this says something to his authority. This says something about his headship. She gets the right to name, or he gets the right to name her woman. All right, number six. Man gets the command to leave his family and join his wife. The man is the one who gets the command to leave his family and join his wife. Genesis 2.24. Moses' commentary here at the end of the chapter. After Adam names Eve. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Looking forward, Moses saw saw that the, the man would be the initiator. He would be the one to leave father and mother. This isn't said of woman. You know, and I'll just be honest with you. I had never thought about it in those terms until commentator after commentator pointed this out. I'd always thought that we both kind of leave father and mother and we, and we, and we jointly unite. But there is some, there seems to be some emphasis here that would indicate an initiating stance on the part of the man that would help us in making our argument towards Headship. Okay? Number seven. And this one's going to take a little bit more thought, so hang on. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Let me just read it to you. This is the account of the fall. And then I'll explain, I'll explain the reason that this point speaks to the fact that there is headship and submission, head and help, prior to the fall. Follow me here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. Let me point out here that there's some word confusion going on. In verse 2, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. God said you may freely eat. Verse 3, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden. God never said it was in the middle of the garden. God said you shall not eat from it or touch it. God never said they couldn't touch it. Or you will die. God said or you will surely die. There's a little bit of word confusion here. Satan doesn't help the matter in verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. He rearranges God's words. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. All right. It was God's original role 
distinction or design. Or to put it in another way, it was God's uh, original emphasis of male headship that Satan directly attacked in the very beginning. All right? What Satan attacks in the fall says something about what God's original plan was. And what does he attack? He attacks the very design in the roles of Adam and Eve. And, and they fail. Satan has always been and will always be crafty, as it says. And how was he crafty? Adam and Eve there in the garden, who does he go to talk to? Eve. Now, here's where you got to think a moment. Satan, Satan is very intentional. And he is very crafty. He doesn't just flippantly choose to go to Eve. What this says is that he knew exactly what God's original design was, and he sought out from the very beginning to corrupt it and wreak havoc on homes, churches, government, etc., etc., throughout history. It all starts right here. This was the earthquake that we continue to feel the aftershocks of for all, all the rest of our time as humanity here on earth. This is what he originally attacked. It, let me ask you this way. Is this topic, manhood, womanhood, and marriage, is it relevant? Is it important? I would say yes on the grounds that if we look back to the creation and the fall, manhood and womanhood and the roles that God originally gave them was the thing, the very thing, that Satan sought to attack. He goes to the woman and he confuses God's words and she gets some wrong. And Adam doesn't say a thing. And she takes a leadership role, and he takes a backseat role, and he doesn't speak up, and she leads out. And now we've got manhood and womanhood flopping their roles, and it doesn't work that way. And Satan says, I got gotcha. you. What God had intended, Satan crushed. He said, I'll mess that up from the very beginning, and you'll feel the effects of it forever and forever and ever. That says something about God's original design, doesn't it? The very thing that Satan went to attack. Long before there was the actual fall, Satan knew where he needed to get a foothold. Piper says that this was the fall. This was the fall, not the eating of the fruit. Meaning that the point where Adam and Eve flip-flopped roles was the actual fall, not the physical eating of the fruit. You see, they messed up long before they decided to take a bite. Eve messed up long before when she decided to, when she decided to take the lead role and interact with Satan and make choices and make decisions and speak, speak God's words that God spoke to Adam originally and confused them and then Satan confused them and rearranged them. Adam messed up, not when he took the bite. He messed up right from the beginning because it says he was with her, and I'll say more about this in a moment. He was there and he didn't open his mouth. He let her step out and take the lead role. He let her be taken advantage of in that way. He sat back and was submissive. She stood up and took the lead. And it all, it all crumbles from there. Satan knew exactly where to attack. 
Eve sinned not only in disobeying God's specific command, but also in acting independently of her husband. You get that? She sinned not only in disobeying God's specific command, don't eat that apple, but she also sinned in acting independently of her husband by failing to consult him about the serpent's temptation. Now, Adam, you're not off the hook either. Adam sinned not only in disobeying God's specific command, don't eat that apple, but also by succumbing to Eve's usurpation of his leadership. Both man and woman twisted God's plan for their relationship, reversing their roles, and marriage has not been the same since. It's not been the same since. So is this, is this topic important? Yeah, you better believe it is. It's been the issue we've been dealing with. It's, the, it's what precipitated the fall in all of our troubles. There's, there's no surprise that it continues to be the thing that corrupts homes, churches, nations. Ought we, uh, with the uh, prevailing winds of our world, to wipe away distinctions between manhood and womanhood? Isn't, isn't that ironic, right? That we are still in our church today fighting the battle that was lost in the garden. We're still in churches and in homes fighting that original battle of role reversal. And that we're even having to teach in our churches and guard our church's theology and doctrines and practices against a wiping away of all distinctions so that men and women can serve equally and do exactly the same things in exactly the same ways so that we can, in the name of equality, have, have the best system possible in our homes, in our governments, in our churches, etc. Isn't, isn't that ironic? Because that's the very thing that Satan attacked. The truth is that roles are never absolutely eliminated in the name of equality. You realize that? Roles are, are never act, actually or completely or totally eliminated in the name of equality. I mean, that's the thought. Uh, that, that never actually works out. That's not what you get. What you get is a different person in charge. What you get is jockeying for a position. Uh, and that's the issue in the end, isn't it? Is who gets to lead? Who, who gets to lead? That's what we want to know. It's not let's be equal. It's no, I want to lead. No, I don't want to be the helper. No, I don't want to be the follower. I want to lead. And we all want to be in charge. We all want to be in charge. But that wasn't originally true. In the beginning, Eve had no problem fulfilling her God-given role. It was actually in her best interest, and she was actually the happiest when she was doing that. But after the fall, selfish ambition put something in all humanity, frankly, in all humanity, both men and women, that causes us to rebel against any authority. Uh, sometime back, and I'm going to take a side road here for a second to help you understand our argument here. Sometime back before the presidential election, uh, you might remember I preached from Daniel, and I made a comment that I think, I think is relevant here. Okay? Uh, I said that in government, a monarch is best, is ideal. In fact, it's ideal over a democracy. And that's a, <laughs> uh, that's a shocking thing to say, I know, since we live in and we promote democracy here in our country. But then you remember I said, the reason we can't have a monarchy is because as we look around, we can't find any perfect human being to put in that sole position 
that we're all willing to follow and know he's not going to lead us astray. That's the only problem. A monarchy would be ideal. It's the best system. It's a system that God will, will reinstitute as king of kings and lord of lords. Practically speaking, functionally speaking, it's, it's ideal. We just so happen to not be able to use that. Um, is a democracy ideal? No. But given the sinfulness of man, it's our best option. A monarch, one guy in charge, is frankly the best way. It's the same in marriage and in the church, I would argue. All right, and let's see if you can draw this together. A head and a helper is ideal. The problem, however, isn't that system. It isn't that program. That's not the problem. The problem, in other words, isn't the monarchy, if you think of it in governmental terms. God wasn't, in other words, mistaken in his original design of manhood and womanhood. The problem is that men are sinful and abuse their role of authority, headship. And women are sinful and they reject their role. Prior to the fall, the system wasn't equality. All right? Prior to the fall, the system wasn't equality in roles. Don't be fooled into thinking that the fall is the reason for this thing we call headship and submission. The fall is not the reason. You had a head and a helper before the fall, but it worked, and it worked perfectly. Even though they were naked, they were not ashamed. And that, I've come to discover, is probably one of the most theologically profound verses, or most important theological verses in all of Scripture. We'll unpack that another day. You see, the original system, it was headship. It was submission. That's not a, that's not a corruption that's not a result of the fall. Now, some of you uh, may be thinking, if a monarch is ideal, but we are forced to utilize a democracy because sin should not, uh, because of sin, should it not then follow that in marriage, that although male and headship and female submission is ideal, we ought to utilize a more democratic role system in the home and in the church, given the sinfulness of those involved in the home and in the church. You see where I'm going with that? I don't want to leave that argument out there because some of you some of you are astute enough to say, well, we don't choose a monarchy. Why should we then choose headship and submission? We don't choose a monarchy for a number of reasons. Uh, as I alluded to, it's not ideal. Let me, let me give you my answer. My answer to that would be that government hasn't the chance of... hasn't the chance of us Christianizing it to the point that um, we might seek the ideal of a monarch. Um, I personally, if, uh, if we could find a guy who's submitting to the lordship of Christ and we could put him up as the monarch, as king, uh, I'd have no problem with that. Abandoning democracy, following that guy who's following Christ. Uh, why? Because I'd be safe in that system, frankly. But uh, that's very unlikely to happen. The chances of that happening are slim to none. Now in the home, however... All right, and this is my answer for the home. Now, in the home, we have a better opportunity of Christianizing the home when the husband and the wife are submissive to Christ. Where Christ isn't in charge, however, I dare say that uh, you would likely be better off with a democratic household. Now, that's a, that's a big statement. So, hear me out here. Where Christ is not the head, 
of the man and the woman, I would dare say you might be better off with a democratic system in your household. Leveling the playing fields, everybody's equal uh, for the sake of self-preservation and somebody not getting stomped on and somebody not getting left behind. Uh, I might argue that you, you might be best off with a democratic system in your household. Uh, it's interesting, when I first started doing weddings, I had a rule that I would only marry if the couple were on the same page. What I mean by that, being on the same page, is that if you were both Christians, I would marry you. Great. It's ideal. If you both weren't Christians, uh, it's not ideal, but I would be, uh, I wouldn't, I didn't have a big problem marrying you. Uh, because your worldviews weren't completely different. That's what I mean by being on the same page. Two Christians, great. Worldviews match, you're on the same page. Uh, it's ideal. Two non-Christians, your worldviews match. They're not ideal, uh, but they match. Uh, I, I'd, I'd go for that. Christian, non-Christian, your worldviews don't match. How are you going to raise kids? doesn't line up. Uh, where you're going to prioritize your money, where you're going to give your money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You have two complete worldviews. You're going to clash. Uh, and so I wouldn't marry a Christian and a non-Christian. I've, uh, I'll tell you though, I've changed on that. I only, at this point, I only marry two believers because, practically speaking, it really doesn't work. Even though I said the best opportunity you have, if if Christ is not the head of the man and the woman, the best opportunity you have is a democratic household. Level the playing field. Everybody's equal. No head, no help, uh, no submission, no headship. Uh, even though I said that, I've come, to, I've come to realize that practically speaking, even for two non-Christians, um, it really doesn't work without both parties being submissive to the headship of Christ. The best shot the world has at marriage is to level the playing field. The best they can. Unfortunately, that still doesn't work because whether they recognize it or not, sin is still in them. And both man and woman end up selfishly clawing their way to the top. It becomes, in a sense, survival of the fittest in the home. Um, I've been saying something for a few years now and uh, taking it as kind of a survey question when I when I do my marriage counseling, etc., uh, or any time I'm in a counseling situation, uh, the statement is this, that all divorce is at some point and at some level an issue of selfishness on someone's part. Let me say that again. All divorce on some level and at some point is an issue of selfishness on someone's part. And I say that with all with all care I can, knowing that many of you come from broken homes. Uh, I come from broken, a broken home. I know that many of you have uh, been through divorce yourself. So I take great care saying that, but I think, I think it's right. If any of you who have experience with divorce think any differently, that at some level there is a root cause that is different than selfishness on one or the other's part. Uh, I haven't, I've not encountered it. I'd like to know about it. We shouldn't be surprised, I was thinking, or frankly even really angered by the direction the world goes in this regard when it comes to their position on roles of manhood and womanhood and marriage. We really shouldn't be surprised or, or that upset. You see, when you don't adhere to a higher standard or a higher power, the only thing you have left 
is yourself and your own best ideas. That's all you got. Your best ideas come from yourself. You, you just don't realize it's a sinful self. It's neither the best way nor in your best interest. But if humanity is going to reject a higher authority, namely Christ as our collective head, then we are forced into a far less than ideal democracy in our governments, in our homes, and even our attempts at church if Christ is not the head. Frankly, if, uh, if everyone's in charge, nobody's in charge. You've seen that before. So what's the answer? The answer is God's original plan. Man is head, woman is help, both for each other, naked and unashamed under Christ. Now that's easier said than done. John MacArthur said it this way, Their original relationship was so pure, speaking of Adam and Eve, it was so pure and perfect that his headship over her was a manifestation of his authority over her, and her submission to him was a manifestation of her consuming love for him. No selfishness or self-will marred their relationship. Let me say that again. No selfishness or self-will marred their relationship. In other words, they were able to live in God's originally, I, original ideal system or plan because there was no selfishness to mar it, to corrupt it. Each lived for the other in perfect fulfillment of their created purpose and under God's perfect provision and care. All right. So, number seven, Satan knew exactly where to attack. And we're feeling the aftershocks of it to this day. It's evidence that it was part of God's original plan. Number eight. Number eight. The curse issued after the fall says something about the distortion of the original design. The curse, which was issued after the fall, right? says something about the original design. If something is cursed or corrupted, and you look at the thing that was cursed or corrupted, you might still be able to identify what the original pattern was, right? So although I'm making an argument that we are trying to discover what God's original plan was before the fall, if we look at the fall and we look at the curse that came after the fall, we might be able to get an indication on what the original plan was. Does that make sense? All right, so look at it. Genesis 3:16. Here's the curse to woman and man. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And here's the line in relation to her husband. Yet your husband will be, yet your desire will be for your husband. Now, please understand that is the curse. And some of you guys are saying, that doesn't sound like a curse to me, man. I kind of like that part. Uh, let me clarify something here. When God says, your desire will be for your husband, that is in fact a curse, man. Okay? It doesn't mean in the sense she will have this grand new sexual desire for you. Evidence number one of that. Okay? I'm going to get myself in trouble right here. I know I am. Uh, I'm not going to ask you men to raise your hand and, and tell me if your experience would tell you that this is an accurate interpretation of this verse. I won't do that. All right. But that would probably be a sufficient argument. OK, uh, that's not the case. OK, we don't see this uncontrollable urge of women that they can't keep their hands off their husbands now because of the fall. That makes no sense. 
That makes no sense. Uh, a more biblical argument uh, would be to look over into the next chapter. Uh, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You remember, you remember this story? Cain and Abel. The same sort of thing is said of Cain in verse 7. God says to him, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of a lion or some sort of wild animal. Sin is crouching at your door. It's a bad situation. Look at the next phrase. And it's what? Desire is for you, but you must master it. Its desire is to eat your lunch. To take over. To overwhelm. That's what desire means here in context. It's the exact word. Interpret through context. Interpret through other scriptures. What does it mean? What does the curse mean that your desire will be for your husband? What it means is... Her, her fallen state, her sinful state, will cause her to want to overthrow your headship. Okay? Now, go on to the man's curse. And he, what's verse three sixteen say? Your desire will be for your husband. And he, this is the curse on the man. This is not, this is not a good thing. He will rule over you. Now this, again, this is a curse. This is not God's institution of headship and submission. The curse on the woman, she's going to try and overthrow his headship. The curse on the man, he's going to try and rule or abuse his authority that was already given all as a result of sin. You see this? So... The argument that says headship, submission is just a result of sin. If, we, if we're now born again in Christ, shouldn't we go back to the original plan, which puts us all in the same equal level playing field? The argument says no. Uh, if any one of these arguments stand on its own, it's, it's this one, I would say. Okay? Her, her curse is not that she has to submit. All right? Here, here's why this argument doesn't hold, hold up. Because there are those who say, well, it's, it's the fall that put us in the position of headship and help. If that were true, then the curse would say, uh, you're resigned, she, she's resigned to submit. Uh, that doesn't make sense. That's not what it says. It actually says she's going to overthrow his leadership, which was inferred to be already established. Him and his sinfulness is going to take his authority, his headship, which is already established, and he's going to abuse it. Remember I said in the, last, in the last point? The sin is this. He abuses and she rebels. All clawing their way to the top. Survival of the fittest. Who's going to be in charge? Okay? All right. They were distortions of the plan. They were not the plan themselves. All right? Don't be fooled into thinking. Don't be fooled into thinking that these are the reasons we have headship and submission. They're not. They're not. Frankly, we ought to collectively as a church cry out against both of these. The desire and the ruling that uh, comes in our sinful and fallen state. Both are evil and neither are in our best interest. 
What we get from the fall in the curse is, in modern terms, male chauvinism and women's liberation. Okay? In modern terms, what we get from the fall, what we get from the curse, is not headship and submission, God's ideal and original and eternal and perfect plan. What we get from the fall is desire, women's lip, rule, male chauvinism. It's an abuse. It's an abuse and it's a rejection. Okay? All right, let me give you the last two here. Let me give you the last two. Number nine. Genesis 3, 7 through 9. Genesis 3, 7 through 9 says this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the... Who did he call to? He called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Evidence number nine, indicator number nine, God calls to the man first after the fall. Uh, John Piper explains this pretty well. I can't, I can't do any better, so I'm just going to give you his illustration. He said that, you know, if my wife and I are, one of us are sinning and God were to show up at our house and knock on our door. And he said, let's just pretend uh, on this occasion that it's my wife who's sinning. Uh, and God shows up at our house and, and my wife answers the door. And uh, he says, and what's, what's his wife's name? You remember his wife's name? I can't think of his wife's name. Let's say it's Sue. And uh, Sue answers the door and God says, hi, Sue. It's good to see you. He said the first thing he's going to say to Sue is, can I speak with John? Even if it's Sue who's in the wrong. He says, I feel, I feel that God is going to say to her, is John home? Can I speak with him for just a moment? And he's going to come in and he's going to talk to John. And he's going to say, John, what, what's going on uh, in the family? Have you been what you need to be in the home? Have you been the husband you need to be? Have you been spending time in the word? Uh, how have you been speaking to your wife? How have you been treating her? I'll, I'll deal with her, I'll speak with her. But he says, I, I think, I think, even if she answers the door, he's going to ask for me. That's the sense of this passage. That even though the woman takes the lead into the fall, and he's sitting right there with her, lets, lets it go, he doesn't say a word about it. Adam is with her. He goes into the garden and he asks for he asks for Adam. I think this says something as to his headship before the fall. God God sees him as responsible. It infers that he had always been responsible. The inference is Adam, why didn't you do something? I gave you the moral command of the garden. All right, number ten, the last one, Genesis five one through three. Genesis 5, 1 through 3, and some of you are noticing we're way past the fall here. But hang with me. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created what? Man, that is the generic term, 
encompassing both male and female. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them. What did he name them? He named them. Who's them? Male and female. He named them, what? Man, in the day that they were created. And Adam had lived 130 years, and he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. All right, so here's the point. God named both male and female man. Again, on its own, it may be weak evidence. Collectively, God had the choice, right? God had the choice. What am I going to call humanity? What would be the politically correct modern term? We just say humanity. God chose to call male and female, what does it say? He named them man. And all commentators say this says something collectively with all these other indicators about a responsibility that God gives to the man in headship. All right. So go back. Let's wrap this up. Go back to our goal. I want you to see this. What is our goal statement once again? Our goal for last week and this week to grasp the goodness in God's eternal design. It is good and it is eternal by seeing that equality in worth and value. That's all good stuff. Does not, nor has it ever. God's not flip-flopped. He's not changed. He's not adjusted to Satan's attack. Does not, nor has it ever required sameness between man and woman. Are we equal? Yes. Are we the same? No. Is, is that what was meant? Yes. Is it good? Certainly. So what's the problem? Next time we're going we're gonna to dive into this thing that we're seeing now is the problem. Because the problem isn't God's original design. The problem is, in our sinful fallen state, men, we have an inclination to abuse the role God gave us. Women, in your sinful state, you have an inclination to rebel against the role God gave you. And we're going to clash when that happens. And we're going to claw our way to the top. And we're going to, in the name of equality, try and wipe away all differences so that we can say we're all equal while we're all still trying to outdo the other. So that we can all be Lord of the Ring. And, and that's just uh, our inherent sin nature across the board. So from here on out, we're going to be dealing with what does it mean to be in Christ and be head. What does it mean to be in Christ and be submissive, to be a suitable helper? Or we're going we're gonna to get rid of any negative connotations that might come with that. We're going to clear it up. We're going to see what does it actually mean. What is, the right, what is the right plan for us? Where do we go now in Christ? How do we do this thing? All right? Let's pray.